Hello and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast where we break down some of the biggest fashion news of the week. I'm fashion reporter Danny Parisi and I'm here as usual with Glossy's editor-in-chief Jill Manoff. Hi Danny. Hello Jill, good to talk to you again. So this week we've got three big stories. Um, Coach obviously got called out for destroying handbags and scrambled for a response. We'll talk a little bit about the whole destruction of products in the luxury world and also about Coach's response. Um, We'll also talk a little bit about some of the interesting tidbits from LVMH's third quarter earnings. And then we'll talk about the absurd amount of money that Viore raised from SoftBank on Wednesday, which came completely out of nowhere to me. Um, But anyway, let's start with Coach first. So um, how about I just give a quick summary of kind of what happened and then we can jump into it. So. Over the weekend, a woman named Anna Sachs, um, who's on TikTok, posted a video uh, showing a bunch of coach bags that she had got from the dumpster, and they were all like slashed down the middle, like practically almost cut in half, um, which she said uh, was sort of coach's policy to do to to, um, its bags after they get tossed out. The video went extremely viral, viewed several million times, and uh, coach had a response. There was a story in Women's Wear Daily where they talked to coach about it. Um, they sort of kind of downplayed it and were like, oh, you know, this is, we're, you know, we're doing a lot about recycling and repairing stuff, but they kind of didn't really answer why, you know, why they were doing this in the first place. So anyway, that's sort of what happened. Joe, how about you go first with your, your take on that? And I, I have some thoughts too. Yeah. Well, first of all, the hypocrisy of it all, like um, the TikToker, like you said, um, Anna Sachs, goes by the trash walker. She's an environmental activist. Um, This video, like you said, viral 2.5 million views. But in the video, um, she talks about what's on Coach's site. Uh, Tips, don't ditch it, repair it. It talks about its repair service. Um, It talks about how they're working to make fashion more sustainable and and circular, what they're doing, um, their environmental efforts. Um, This day and age when everything's about authenticity, um, it feels more damaging when authenticity is prioritized. I I feel like even more so than when Burberry got accused or did the same thing in 2018. Um, They definitely, you know, they, I I guess, repaired their image. And um, I think, I believe, but like that, there's not a line about how they burn clothes every time you talk about Burberry, let's say. but yes, and actually, um, this woman, she bought the bags from somebody called Dumpster Diving Mama, um, who I just did a little research on, which is really interesting. Like, this is her her jam. She <laughs> dumpster dives and sells everything from uh, beauty products that are, are like new and that are packaged up uh, to, and it runs the gamut to fashion and accessories and um, finds the best things. She says, saving the planet one dumpster at a time. So anyway, she just happened to come across these coach bags on this uh, person's e-commerce site. And wow, it, it's shocking. It is. And uh, one quick thing on Burberry, though, I, I think you're right in that every time uh, people mention Burberry, I don't immediately think the people who burn their clothes. However, anytime the topic of a luxury brand destroying clothes comes up, I do immediately think Burberry. So I don't think they've totally shaken that in my opinion. <laughs> Good but, point. Um, but I do think, I, so the thing that kind of frustrated me about the response, and you can read the um, Women's Wear Daily story about it, um, I feel like their response is they're emphasizing, oh, we do all this good recycling stuff and we don't want things to end up in the landfill. And I feel like they're completely ignoring 
this the central part which is not just that it was in the dumpster but that it was slashed and destroyed intentionally so that it could not be used and i feel like they don't have any answer for why that was happening you know it's one thing for it to end up in the dumpster obviously you don't want that but they completely sidestepped the issue of intentionally destroying the product in the first place um and that to me was like that to me was really kind of rubbed me the wrong way with that response it was sort of like look at all these nice things we're doing we're trying to not let things go in the trash and i'm like but why are you and and the other thing is that the response i don't have the exact quote pulled up but the their response they sort of say they keep referring to it as the stores that did this or like you know this is not something we want our stores to do and and i feel like that's just a little rhetorical trick to make it sort of sound like oh the stores just like went rogue and did it and we have no control over them or whatever i'm like your your coach their coach stores and your coach can't you tell them not to do like can't you make it a policy or something i didn't like it either i kind of i have the the comment here that a vast majority of excess inventory is donated um, what's being destroyed in stores is like the, the comment that you're right. referring to uh, yes. represented 1% of units globally. Okay, 1% is actually a lot. Like if you think <laughs> of one out of 100 are destroyed, like, okay. For a, especially that... for a big company like like Coach, that's a lot of bags. Yeah. And, and, and that, but that's exactly the quote I was thinking of where it's like 1% are destroyed, very passive voice. And it's like, you know, referring to it as like the stores are doing it. And I'm like, do you not have any control over what the people at your stores do? Yes. I was talking to somebody um, at, gosh, I mean, this speaks a lot to their relationship or what, how they still feel about resale because, you know, we know about a lot of kind of under the radar partnerships happening between brands and resale companies, um, which they're fishing their unsold merchandise or return merchandise to them is what it seems. You know, nobody's coughing up the information as we would like, Um, but um, yeah, they're doing this increasingly. Why, why not sell it on resale or you don't necessarily have to discount it and damage your reputa- reputation or whatever it is they're worried about. Um, but there, there are plenty of other ways. And that's the, the other thing is that the Burberry burning the clothes thing was from like four or five years ago at this point or something, right? Wasn't it 2017 or 2018? Like yeah. that, uh, that elicited such a strong response. And every time something like this happens, like when the guy from Abercrombie and Fitch was like, we don't want poor people to wear our clothes or ugly people or something. I forget what he said. You know, everybody got really upset about that. Rightfully so. It's a horrible thing to say. And I'm like, how did they not, how have a lot of these brands not learned? You know, this has happened several times. And I can't imagine whatever money they believe they're saving from destroying stuff. I'm like, is it worth the PR hit when this inevitably gets found out, you know? Yeah, totally. So this is shedding new light on the problem, which is probably a good thing. Let's change this now. This Just because this woman discovered this doesn't mean that this is the only brand that's doing it. Uh, In France, there are regulations that ban brands from doing this. Um, And now this TikToker, she's looking to kind of start this coalition that says um, there's a federal law that will discourage the overproduction um, and, and incentivize this donation. So anyway, um, donations of things that are unsellable or that they're not selling. I don't know what that law would look like, actually. Um, but I mean, the fact that people are taking action here um, to change this and to make it a law like in as it is in France, that's awesome. Yeah, definitely. And, and moments like this where it's extremely visible and the brand kind of clearly is shaken by it, like that, I think that all drives towards hopefully real action. Um, 
Okay, let's move on to LVMH. So there was not really one big story from this. There's, there's a couple of things I want to mention. So, I mean, obviously, LVMH is a humongous company. Um, and so their earnings, I feel like, are always kind of relevant. But I'm just going to mention a few numbers real quick, and then we could go through any other interesting little bits that stood out. So just in general, like, it was good for that. This is covering, I think, the first or the second half of their fiscal year. Um I believe it's overall revenue is up 46%, but something that jumped out to me was that uh, both the US and Asia in its entirety, um, which had both been big growth drivers for the company, slowed down a lot. So last year, I think growth in the US was 60%, and this quarter or this half is 28%. The uh, CFO, Jean-Jacques Guioni, I think is how you say his name, um, talked uh, sort of downplayed a lot of the issues he downplayed um the supply chain issues saying they're not really concerned about that he downplayed some of the government regulations in china that people were concerned might curb luxury spending so they he seemed very confident and obviously you know you don't want to seem not confident in an investor call but um the things that jumped out to me as a challenge were all sort of met uh you know with um not a lot of concern yeah, they're LVMH. No, <laughs> I mean, they're not no. doing bad. That's for sure. Um, record revenue or record quarter for um, fashion and is it fashion and leather leather goods? Um, fashion and leather goods. So yeah. those two areas are doing great. Um, and the fashion, the fashion brands that they called out as doing extra great, I would say um, Louis Vuitton, um, Fendi under Kim Jones, the first collection came out. Um Celine Lueve and Mark Jacobs got a shout out, but, um, and also there was much focus on Tiffany, um, which I thought was so interesting. Of course, that's a, a highlight of their, their quarter, um, watches, jewelry, the organic revenue for, um, the first nine months of the year up 49% versus 2020. Um, to me, it was so interesting because it really counters, uh, what we've long said and, um, definitely what, high fashion brands are aiming to to overcome, especially in the last year. They've probably had a lot of practice, but we, we like to say they don't move fast. They're not nimble. Um, and we've seen this with all of these new hires that Tiffany's made uh, or that they made um, for Tiffany. What I don't know how it went down. Um, and the new creative, uh, the new advertisements that are kind of I don't know, snarky, mm-hmm. like not your mama's Tiffany. Not your and mama's know- Tiffany. And the, the Jay-Z and Beyonce one, which I, I don't know um, if if this was before or after, but I know, well, no, it must have been before. I know they just uh, hired their first chief marketing officer in like five years, Andrea Davey. Uh, and then on the creative side, um, Ruba Abu Nima, who is the, one of the co-hosts of Culture Club, has been their creative director since I think March. Um, and she, I think, is, I mean, she's like sort of a streetwear person. Um, she does culture club with Jeff Carvalho and Gian Delian and Ben Dietz and stuff. Um, so I feel like that was sort of an inspired choice and and she's great. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of wish there was, I, I know they don't typically break out specific brands revenue, but I kind of wish there was some indication of like, since Tiffany was acquired, they've seen this much growth or they've seen this much revenue or something like that. Um, but I mean, I guess we sort of just have to infer from the whole watches and jewelry section. One one other thing that I that jumped out to me was um, there was a question on the call about LVMH selling through like third party e-commerce retailers like Farfetch or something like that. And again, I mean, I feel like they've had such resistance to that um, for a long time. And he, uh, Guioni again said, 
that they didn't or they were hesitant about it because they would lack the customer data that they get from first party sales like through their direct channels and i that's true like i get that you definitely get a lot more data from selling direct than through like a third party but um i feel like the the amount of data you can get from a retailer at this point i feel like it's got to be really good um depending i guess depending on who you're selling through but still from what i've heard i don't know i just i'm like why don't they just do it already yeah. <laughs> well, I'm kind of I'm on team team LVMH there. If you can um, sell through your own channels and have all the data you want, I mean, if anybody can, they can. I I think that's interesting. Yeah, um, the move to first party, the the stress of uh, that them stressing that that that's the goal. Um, that's interesting. I, I that makes sense to me. Yeah, that that's true. That uh, one one final thing on LVMH, and then we can move on. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, but. Uh, Keone again had a very funny response to the supply chain question where he was like yeah I don't see that really affecting us unless like shipping gets more expensive and I'm like shipping is going to get more expensive and like I get that they're I get that they're LVMH they have you know infinity money in their bank account they can probably weather anything but still I'm like you're going to be affected you know and again if you're on the investor call you got to project confidence but you know they're going to be affected for sure just everybody is um their ship they have a lot of money and the shipping might go up a little bit but they're also shipping a lot of stuff so it's going to be exponential right. you know what i mean so totally. i don't know obviously they can weather it better than some tiny independent brand but they are going to be affected by that i think i think so too and it was interesting to see the um i guess slow build back to um to growth and to sales in Europe, like you said, U.S. and Asia were the the top markets, and there was that mention, a couple of mentions about what was happening in Europe and how it's not back up to speed. Um, so yeah, they definitely have some more building to do. Yeah, for sure. Okay, let's go to the last topic of the day. So uh, Viore, which is a California-based activewear brand, um, who I first was introduced to a couple of years ago, and sort of has been aware of them. I have a couple sweatpants from them that I like a lot. I kind of just am like, yeah, they're like a good direct-to-consumer brand. They're doing pretty well, I think. Um, didn't really think much more about it. And then I got this notification that they raised $400 million today from SoftBank. Um, SoftBank being this huge Japanese investment company. Um, and they are now valued at like $4 billion. I mean, it's an absurd amount of money. Um, especially for a relatively new, I mean, they're like six years old, I think they launched in 2015, um, DTC brand. Uh, they, they, they told me that it's the largest investment in a private apparel company ever. I have not vetted that claim. I'm not 100% sure if that's true, but I mean, it's certainly the largest I can think of. Um, yeah, wh- why don't you go first on this one, Joe? What, what do you make of that announcement? Well, I'm with you. You you told me the news and I was like, hold the phone. <laughs> it came as a big shock um, for sure. To me, it, it shows obviously investors' confidence in the activewear space. Um, and we've seen that. I mean, customers, as opposed to athleisure and sweatpants, which we can talk about, Every everybody was kind of forced to go there or, um, you know, you're at home, let's be comfortable. It's just the apparel buy that makes sense you're not going to buy a suit in terms of activewear um there's not a lot of talk about you know when things go back to a version of normal i'm gonna stop you know this wellness kick that i'm on or you know i'm gonna stop taking my walks outside and going running or whatever it seems like everybody 
is in this self-care mode and they like it. Like, I, I think that there's more of this. Like we see, we saw stats. I was just talking to somebody and they were telling me, um, we were talking about how there's no cool walking brand because they were saying, you know, a, a per- certain percentage of people want to run more in 2022. This huge percentage of people want to wa- walk more. It was like 50, 60 percent. Um, so anyway, people are on a health kick. Um, they don't want to stop working out in their in their spandex and <laughs> their activewear like they want to stop wearing sweatpants. So it shows the confidence in the market, which makes sense. Um And like you said, SoftBank um, is investing in some of these buzzy uh, categories that show a lot of a lot of traction and hope like resale would be a Vestier collective. Um, So anyway, I was surprised at the amount, especially because Viore hasn't been one to raise a lot of money. Uh, You mentioned in your your story today, they've only um, at their start had a two million friends and family round, and they've been prioritizing profitability. My question to you immediately was like, why now? Make sure you ask or make sure you find out, um, which I mean, they are charting big growth, it seems, is is the name of the game. Yeah. I mean, from what Joe Kudlow, the CEO, told me, um, it seems like they, I mean, he said they prioritize profitability right away. And, and according to him, he, he didn't give me the exact numbers, but he said that they've been profitable for like years now um, and have not really had any issue with that and, and the interesting thing is I feel like from in my talking to both um, VC investors and direct consumer brands or, or like into like startup brands um, there's sort of this dichotomy between profitability and growth like you can either be you can either get profitable in sort of a slow steady way and like stay small um, or at least grow very slowly or you can take a huge amount of VC money um, balloon up super fast and like hope that you survive um, right. long enough to like become profitable eventually. Um, it seems to me, you know, from talking to Joe, that they took the former route until they were in a really, really good, solid place. And now that they have that and there's no risk. Um, I mean, obviously there's always risk, but there's no risk of them being like a flash in the pan, like crash and burn kind of brand. Now is yeah. the time where they can take that investor money. The other thing is he, he emphasized this and probably everyone would say this about their investors, but he, he emphasized that SoftBank has been pretty um, lax with their short-term expectations. He said there were no short-term expectations. And a lot of times if you're a brand new startup brand and you get a ton of VC money, there are strong short-term profit um, or not profit, sorry, short-term growth um, milestones that you have to hit uh, or that they really want you to hit. And so he stressed that SoftBank is, that he said they meshed on sort of like the long-term strategy for the company. Like they both see it as like a slow, steady kind of long-term thing rather than just let's get this as big as possible, as fast as possible and, and hope that it turns into something. Um, uh, also, so earlier you said Vestier Collective, um, SoftBank uh, invested in them as well. Just to be clear, they did, it was over 200 million into Vestier too. So they're investing in these buzzy spaces like resale and activewear but they're investing a lot you know they're they're throwing money around i mean they're one of the biggest companies in the world so they can do that but it is it's it seems like it's not just you know spreading money around to several different resale places they're like picking sort of who they think is you know going to be a a leader in that space and then just dumping money into them could we please talk about entire world before we get off here? I'm excited, oh my gosh, I'm not excited yeah. but like, I'm like, what? We found out today also that um, the beloved 
band of outsiders designer Scott Sternberg, who launched Entire World in 2018, um, that he folded the company today. There was there was all this great press at the start of the pandemic about um, the fact that it was booming. They, I, gosh, what was the the story in New York Times about um, kind of um, calling out the the height of the sweatpants era? Um, and it was his story and and how at the start of the pandemic. He, you know, put out this, I think it was an email. I don't think it was an Instagram, but it was like this very personal um, message to his his um, customers that was just saying, you know, this is where we are. It was very raw and personal. And everybody said, you know, that's what people wanted from brands at the time. So his take on it rather than kind of, um, you know, stay quiet or, or continue to post <laughs> outfit pics on, on across uh, marketing, that that really worked and that they make t-shirts and sweatshirts and sweatpants, these great comfortable basics so that the brand was really suited to the times. So, um, you know, this came as a shock to me also, the things that happened this week. Um, everything's discounted on the site. They are, um, yeah, again, folding. And the the message from from Scott is that this was a problem with trouble fundraising, which again, is surprising. It seems like there's a all good the, community. Because all the fundraising money was going to Viore. That's why. <laughs> this explains everything. <laughs> Were they no, talking but, to SoftBank? Go ahead. It's it's interesting. That, I mean, I, I can't tell personally if like how much we should read into this as a reflection on the active work category. Like, it's definitely notable that even though this category is growing and really big, that a very notable designer was not able to do fundraising. Um, but I, I know there was also a failed merger that was mentioned in there. I don't I know, or yeah. not ac- merger, acquisition. acquisition. Yeah. Um, I don't think it was said with who, but uh, apparently that fell through and that was a, also a catalyst to the whole thing folding. So I, I think that maybe there might've been some other circumstances and not just, you know, I don't think it's purely just like, oh, maybe activewear is not that important, like not that great of a category. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is unfortunate and it is the fundraising thing is really shocking to me. Cause I'm like, nobody wanted to give any money. Like, I don't know. I feel like you could get investment for like, you know, the dumbest stuff and, and, but entire yeah. world wasn't able to, so I don't know what, what's going don't- on there. And don't put all your eggs in this basket of fun, like being able to raise money. Like it seems like that maybe, maybe he read as desperate because the way that it was positioned, like anyway, um, that you're really relying on this to make a go of it. I mean, it's it's wild. So obviously, ideally, they would have started with a f- small friends and family round, uh, round and, and maybe had a slower build like Fiori. Um, I mentioned that. <laughs> maybe Yeezy for Gap with their rainbow colored solid hoodies. Like it, it really, when I saw that, it re- I was thinking this reads like entire world, just kind of the uh, comfort and the, the chunky <laughs> silhouette that it had, um, which is like, like Sarah said on our team, it, it's sad to think that <laughs> Yeezy for Gap is uh, kind of a, a makeshift replacement for entire world. Uh, I'm sorry I said that. <laughs> it's not, but go ahead. I mean, I think that's it. Uh, how about we wrap it up here? Um, thank you so much, Jill. It was great talking to you, and we'll talk to you all again next week. Thanks, Danny. 